Yea, though I walk through the valley, shout valley, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare the table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Shout amen. God, I'm asking you to do something special and transformational in all of our lives. Those who are listening by podcast or video and those who are here, including my life as the preacher, would you? In Jesus' name I pray. Shout amen. 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 Please be seated. <clears throat> so here's my contention as it relates to this message. I contend that in the valley that is located in this particular text, there are some insights, as I said earlier, that if we actually get it in our hearts and our spirits could radically transform the experience of living actually in Silicon Valley and radically enrich our experience of living in Silicon Valley in relationship with God. The first thing I want to point out is the accessibility of this passage. One of the reasons why it is so familiar to us is in verse 4 it begins, it says, <clears throat> uh, uh, it, 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 it begins with this notion of, of I. Everybody shout I. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, David is the writer of this passage, but if I didn't tell you that David wrote it, if you just took the passage on, on face value, it would immediately become accessible because the I in this text has no gender or sex attached to it. So if you're a man or if you're a woman, you can, you can immediately find yourself in the valley of this text. The I in this text has no, no, no race or ethnicity attached to it. It has no, no sense of rich or poor attached to it. Uh, educated or not educated. So whoever you are, whatever race, whatever your context is, you can immediately find yourself included in the eye in the valley of this text. Tell the person next to you, meet me in the valley. It's accessible. It's accessible. One of the reasons why it's so familiar. Second insight that drops out is, that, that jumps out at me, is that if you are the eye that's walking through the valley in this text, it means that you are the secondary actor in this narrative, not the primary actor. Now, this is important. I'm going to tell you why. It's very important living in Silicon Valley. Pastor Tilden told you guys last weekend that, uh, and many of you remember this, at Easter, we asked you to fill out on your connection card what are some of the challenges in Silicon Valley that makes it difficult for you to take your next step of faith. One of the themes that emerged again and again and again through your responses was the pressure that comes with living in Silicon Valley. Everybody shout pressure. It's an enormous amount of pressure that comes with living in Silicon Valley. One of those sources of pressures is finance. We'll talk about that somewhere between now and the end of the series. But here is the first insight to beginning to live 
a, a, a kind of different experience in Silicon Valley because if you understand as you live in Silicon Valley, if you always see yourself as a secondary actor and remember that God is the primary, shout primary. See, in this text, God is from God is the shepherd. We are the sheep. In this text, it is, it, is, it, is, it is God who is watching over me and you as we walk through the valley so that we don't fear any evil. It is God who is providing protection and comfort. It is God who is, provide, who is preparing a table before us. It is God whose house that we find goodness and mercy. See, God is the primary actor. And it's important for you and I to remember that when our backs up against the wall, when there is a mountain that is immovable in front of us, that what we need to do is remember that it is God who does the heavy lifting. So we ask for God. We seek for God. We invite God to participate. But God does the heavy lifting. Shout, God does the heavy lifting. That takes a little pressure off, doesn't it? It's up to God to do the heavy lifting if he's the first actor, if you will, in your life. The next thing that jumps out of this text is that the valley is a necessary part of the journey. Come on, tell the person next to you, you need a valley in your life. We, 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 we want second thoughts, you know, we think about it. But when you think about it, look, the landscape of the earth, one of the things that makes uh, the geography of the earth so beautiful is that there are valleys built into it. The fact of the matter is, metaphorically speaking, uh, uh, that all of us in living life, we go through valleys. And if you and I are truthful, we do our best growing. We don't like it. I don't like this truth, but it's a fact. We do our best growing in valleys. In valleys. Now watch the text points this out. In verse 3, it begins by saying, you restore my soul. That's, that, that, that comes out, it reflects, that's the kind of the ending of the points that's being made in verse 1 and 2. And then the second half of verse 3 sets us up to, 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 to find ourselves in verse 4 and 5. Here's what it says. Uh, you lead me, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Or you can say it like this. He leads me down righteous paths for the sake of his name. Or you could say it like the New Living Translation renders it. He guides, everybody say guides. He guides me down right paths in ways that honor his name. Now here's what the writers say. That, 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 that the hand of God is upon my life and he's guiding me down various paths that show up in the valley and, and as I go down the path that God is guiding me and as I am engaging life in ways that bring honor to his name one day I wake up and I discover yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death it is the right paths that drop me in the valley show up right his path has led me into the valley. Kirk Perry, who is the president of 
of brand marketing for Google has preached here in this church at least twice over the last four years. He has a wonderful story that he tells about how he came to Silicon Valley. He says that he was a leading exec for Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, Ohio. Had a wonderful church there. His wife and family was settled there. And he led a team out to meet with Google execs just on a learning expedition. And while in a meeting, one of the execs pointed out, pointed out to him and his team that there was a position, this particular position, president of brand marketing, that they had been trying to fill for the last 18 months and had been unable to fill it. And he said when he heard that, immediately the thought came into his heart and mind that says, oh, they're waiting for me. Then he caught himself and the second thought that came was, I can't believe I say that. Am I that egotistical? Oh my gosh. Then the third thought that came to his mind was, it wasn't you that said it, it was God saying it to you. So he went back home to Cincinnati and he said to his wife, I think that God is calling us to California. She says, oh no, I hope that is not true. Are you kidding? You want to go to California? Who wants to live in California? <laughs> and he couldn't, he, he, he says he tried to shake it off. After some weeks, it just kept reoccurring. So finally, he sends an email to the exec that uh, was leading the uh, meeting where this came up. And he said to the exec, he said to her, he said, I, I don't want to be, uh, forgive me, I, this is a strange question. But were you talking to me when you mentioned the position that was open for 18 months? And the exec wrote back and said, we had heard that you are perceptive. <laughs> and in a matter of months, they had moved from Cincinnati to the Silicon Valley. So if Kirk was here, here's what he would say to you. However you got here, some of you were born and raised here. Some of you are here in college. Some of you came here to go to college and you just stayed after college was over. Some of you came here to take a job and that is what brought you here. What Kirk would say, you ought to look a little deeper. At the end of the day, God, Kirk would say that you are in Silicon Valley because God has planted you here for this season. Tell the person next to you, it's possible that God puts you here. That changes my paradigm, right? Because the moment I acknowledge that perhaps I'm here because God drew me here, planted me here, caused me to grow here, it means that I now have to ask and answer two questions. Number one, who is God? And number two, what does God expect of me? Come on, say this with me. Say, who is God? Number two, what does God expect of me? If he put me here, he expects something. If you've been coming to this church, we, would, we answer the first question very easily. God is the one who showed up in his son Jesus who died on Calvary's cross for your sins and mine and who got up and broke the chains of death and who lives today. That's question answer number one. Now you've got to answer number two. What does he expect? Next insight that pops out of this passage for me that can begin to kind of change our experience of living in Silicon Valley. He says, uh, Yeah, though I walk through the valley 
of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The suggestion is that in the valley of the text, as it is in Silicon Valley, there are a whole lot of dangers and a whole lot of blessings at the same time. In the same valley. A whole lot of dangers. Now, if you're going through a Jewish valley, no doubt there are parts of the valley where you would run across perhaps some wild animals that if you get too close, they would tear you apart. If you're going through a Jewish valley, no doubt you'd run across some plants that perhaps is very much like the plants that used to be in the backwoods of my house. We call them poison oak. And if you get too close, if you touch it or it touch you, it could mess you up. No doubt there's some berries growing in the, in the valley that are poisonous berries. And if you digest those berries, uh, it, it could actually take you out of here. So is it the same way in Silicon Valley. There are some dangers lurking here in Silicon Valley, right alongside some blessings. Now, here's an insight. Listen up. Here's an insight. This is unique to Silicon Valley. Here, listen to me. Oftentimes, some of the greatest dangers in Silicon Valley is located in the middle of some of the greatest blessings in Silicon Valley. Everybody say, hmm. Let me see might I illustrate. If you go to Google or Facebook or LinkedIn or many of these uh, high-tech companies, you'll discover some fascinating blessings. Now, on their campus, they have brought in some of the best chefs in the world. And they provide you with a variety of options for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You can get Asian cuisine, you can get burritos, you can get steak, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They've also made it possible for you to get your clothes laundried and clean. They've also made it possible for you to do your exercise. And if you're at Google, they actually provide bicycles and there's parks for you to go to. Uh, and they've also made it possible for you to have childcare if you need it. And they've also made it possible for you if you need to lay down and get a nap and sleep. They've got a place for you to sleep right there on the job. Now, let me just ask you, aren't those just blessings, wonderful blessings? But let me ask you this question. If at my work, I can get breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it's high-class cuisine. Come on now. If at my work, I can get my clothes laundry. If at my work, I can get some child care. If at my work, I can also do my exercise. If at my work, there's a place for me to sleep. Why should I ever leave work? So right in the middle of the blessings is a danger that would entice us to work 12, 14, 15 hours, that, that drives apart families, that leads to divorce, that leaves children feeling abandoned and isolated at activities where parents are not showing up because they're working 14, 15 hours. Do you see the danger in the middle of the blessing? That's in the valley. That's in Silicon Valley. But there's another side of the truth that I find intriguing. Sometimes, out of some of the worst dangers can come some of God's greatest blessings in the valley. Everybody go, hmm. Let's see, can I illustrate? Her name is Jada M. You may know her because she's the founder of Freedom House. You may be familiar with Freedom House because 
it is an incredible program that provides uh, a way out for women who have been trapped in human trafficking. One of the great dangers in Silicon Valley is that we are a hub for international human trafficking. Where women are enslaved, sex slaves, and sold right here in the Bay Area in horrendous, abusive situations. Jada, if she was here, she'd tell a story. She would say that she was born in South Korea in a, in a, in a, in a house uh, where uh, uh, Buddhism was the, was the main religion. That at the age of 10, her parents moved her to Silicon Valley. And her middle school friends introduced her to Jesus. That's a word for middle schoolers and high schoolers, how you can be an instrument for God. She went through high school, went to college. She met and fell in love with a guy who was a devoted follower of Jesus. And in the process, she too became a follower of Jesus. And then she pursued a career as a, as a very uh, uh, successful pharmacist. And from 1997 to 2008, her career exploded. But at the same time, while her career was expanding and exploding, there was also an explosion actually physically happening in her head called migraines. Now, these migraines would get worse, would go from bad to worse year after year. Finally, she got to a place where everything, anything would trigger lights, would trigger uh, food, would trigger traveling, would trigger it. It got so bad that she had to stop working. It dehabilitated her and she found herself locked in her room. And she would say to her husband, if God is such a loving God, why is he causing me to suffer? If God loves me so much, why hasn't he rescued me? And this went on year after year for nine years. Can you say nine years? It got so bad that she began to think about suicide. And she began to say to her husband and friends that she didn't know how much more she could take. She's thinking about taking her life. A text says, but thou art with me in the valley. Even when I can't find you, you're with me. She would tell you that God sent a friend, Janelle, into her life who would pray with her and ultimately invite her to come to Jubilee Christian Church to hear Pastor Cho from South Korea who pastored one of the largest churches in the world built on prayer. Jada would tell you that she got to the church it was already packed, 2,000 people were there and she has no explanation for this. All she knows is that the, the usher at the back met her and, and brought her all the way to the front pew. And as this frail young man, frail elderly man in his last, late 70s, early 80s were preaching a very simple message, there was something in her that said, you need him to pray for you. When the, when the service was over, they rushed him out, and she didn't get a chance to get to him, so she said, well, maybe I was just mistaken, so she went home. And the next morning, she got a call from a friend, Janelle, and she, Janelle who said, uh, I don't think I told you, but Pastor Cho is a family friend, and he's having lunch today, and I'm inviting you to come. It's a small private lunch so that he can pray for you. Around 12, 30, 1 o'clock, she showed up at lunch and the request was made and the pastor said, I'd be honored to pray for her. And, 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 and she said that she got out on her knees and he laid his hand on her and he, he prayed a very simple prayer of healing. And she said, nothing changed. She didn't feel anything different. 
But she said she received the healing and went home. And that night, she said her system began to purge itself. It was so violently purging itself that they thought about calling 911 the next day. And she said no. And it went on for three days. After the third day, she awakened totally free. And from, from 2008 to 2018, she suffered no more migraines. She has been totally healed. Now, God doesn't always, uh, shout nine years. She suffered for nine years. Some of y'all may be suffering in your second or third year. So part of that is to say, even though you don't feel God is with you, he's with you. Just hold on. Come on now. You're still a mountain mover and a way maker. And no, God doesn't always miraculously heal that way. But he always miraculously gives us victory by not allowing whatever the challenge is to have the last word. And so when she got out of that situation, she got healed. She said, do I go back to my career or do I do something different? And she said to God, watch this, this is the, the danger, out of the danger of nearly losing her faith, out of the danger of nearly losing her life. Watch this, watch this huge blessing comes out of it. She said, she began to pray. And she said, God, how do I express my gratitude? And she said, God dropped in her spirit. Uh, I want you to serve me. And she ended up at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship and at a global uh, mission meeting. And there she heard about human trafficking for the first time. And God said, that's where I want you to begin. And she, 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 she immediately realized, so, uh, so, so out of that came this notion that she needed to provide a shelter. But she said, I don't know what population. And so she went to a conference a few months later. And the speaker at the conference, the trafficking conference said, you know, when women get out of trafficking in the Bay Area, they have no place to go. God, she said, that's it. So she went to her husband and they pooled their resources and purchased the first house that they named Freedom House. And, and they, they take 15 women at a time. And they provide them with housing and shelter and food and clothing. And they provide mental health care to help them to work through the trauma. And they provide hands-on skills to prepare them to have a future once they graduate uh, after 18 months. And now from, 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 from 2008 on up, Freedom House, both for adults and now for teenagers, have delivered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women. And that blessing came out of the danger. So here's the point. Sometimes it's in the danger of the valley is where we meet God. And God becomes real to us. God instructs us. Here's how I want you to serve me. And then the text says, watch this. For thou art with me. Notice it does not say, for I'm with you. And the understanding, everybody go, hmm. The notion of the text, watch this. If you get behind the text, here's what the writer is really suggesting. God is not only in the valley, but God owns the valley. The valley is God's hood. We can prove it because if you turn the page, one page over, and read chapter 24, here's the writer. Say, writer, here's what he says. He says, the earth is the Lord, 
and everything that's in it. The world and all who live in it. And so so, so it says God owns it. Watch this. And then he says, and God is the source of the produce in the valley. He says, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the ocean. He is the source of what is produced in the valley. Shout God is with me. Here's another way of, of, of conceptualizing it. When I grew up in Cushada, we had a small house. You could put my whole house in the sanctuary. And the walls were thin, as you would imagine. And sometimes my friends would come over, and we'd be in one room talking. And then inevitably, as kids would do, we'd start talking about stuff we shouldn't talk about. My mama, who's in another room, could hear us. And she would simply say, she would say, I hear y'all. That was always said. Now listen, Mama was with us, y'all. Come on now. She wasn't in the room, but she was with us. We were in the space that was occupied by Mama. The writer is saying that God owns the valley. Okay, that God owns the produce, the, what's produced in the valley that reflects His character, His goodness, and His grace. Let me ask you another question. This is just, okay, inflicting on this. Is it possible that God created Silicon Valley to be his unique blessing in the world? That it wasn't just an accident. I thought I'd check it out. So, you know, I discovered that in the early days of Silicon Valley, the indigenous population would raise these incredible fruits and vegetables here, and ultimately, the fruit and vegetables would end up helping to feed the nation. Can you shout blessing? I found out in the late 1800s, the first wireless telegraph was sent from a U.S. military ship returning from a Spanish-American war, which totally revolutionized the whole telegraph system. Can you say blessing? I found out that in early 1900s, the first radio station was born right here in Silicon Valley, which revolutionary, this whole notion of radio for both the country and the world. I, I found out that uh, 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 in the mid-1950s, the Silicon uh, 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 chip, if you will, was born. In the early 70s, the microchip, computer, micro, the computer microchip was born. In the late 70s, the Apple computer was born. After that came the internet and after that came Amazon and eBay and Craigslist and, 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 and I haven't even mentioned the venture capitalists or the universities or the medical industry. I haven't mentioned all of those things that's right here in the valley. Can you shout blessing? Not that it's been all used that way, but could it be that God planted Silicon Valley to be a unique blessing? Could it be that God planted you here to be a unique blessing? All right. I say he owns the produce. Listen to me. If it's true that God is a source of all knowledge, then it is also true that it's God's knowledge that has produced technology. So if you're a chemical engineer, come on, you're engaging with, with an aspect of God's knowledge. It is also true then that God's knowledge has produced medical breakthroughs. So if you're a doctor or a nurse or a lab technician, you're engaging with God's knowledge. And then it is also true that God's knowledge has produced the work of justice in the vineyard. Therefore, if you're a judge or a courtroom stenographer, you're engaging with God's knowledge. 
dollars, then it is also true that the millions, billions of dollars that venture capitalists have actually belong to God. Come on now. Uh, and you're engaging with, 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 with the product of God. So what I'm suggesting, the next time you go to work, don't ever suggest the only time I can do God work is in the church. No, baby. When you go to work, come on now, I hope you realize that your job sizzles with the holiness of God. Education, science, flipping burgers. Here's how I'll describe it. You've heard me tell the story many times how when I was calling into the ministry, having prayed for a few weeks, I ended up at a filling station. A young man told me, God's calling you to go to ministry. You've heard that story. What you haven't heard is that I ultimately got in my car to drive the Cushada, which was about... I was in Amsterdam, I had to drive about three and a half, four miles. And as I started driving towards the bridge that, over which we had to cross to get over to Cushada, a line of cars was in front of me. The traffic slowed and I suddenly began, I, the only way I can describe it, it was as though the presence of God started to fill that car. It started, it was as though I had driven, the, you know, if you drive a car off into the lake or the river and slowly the water emerges, fills the car. It was, I could feel it. It started at my feet and just worked its way on up. And finally here I was stopping traffic and finally I was submerged in this incredible holy presence of God. had filled the car and all I could do was to get, open the door because everybody was stopped, the line of cars. I opened the door, got out of the car, and started praising God, said hallelujah. And people were looking at me, they started rolling up their windows and locking their doors. Wow. Now there's a lot of ways to talk about the experience that I had there in the car, uh, but, but here's the way that I want to talk about it. I believe that, see, I believe God's presence is always around us. But there are some times when God will activate the synapse, if you will, in our biology. And, 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 and unexpectedly, we become aware, come on now, of, how, of his holy presence. And, and here I was in an unholy car, but his holy presence was filling me. Here I was, an unholy fella, but his holy presence. I became conscious of the unique holiness that was, all, that was with me in that moment my prayer is that when you go back to work tomorrow God will activate the synapse in your biology and that as you start to teach or uh, uh, you're an admin assistant or you're a nurse or you're, or, 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 or you're an engineer or you're a venture capitalist or you're a CEO or you're a janitor or, or, or you're a parent raising kids that God will activate the sin snap and suddenly you will become aware of the holiness of the work that you're doing and that's a, of the presence of God that is all around the work that you're doing. See, some people say, I'm looking for God in Silicon Valley. I stop by to tell you, you don't need to look for God. You're bumping into God every day. Sat and recognized. All right. Now, I've worked down to the last point. And as I thought about this, I decided in advance that I was going to sit down to explain this point because I get so excited and I know that I start talking about this point I get so excited 
that see, my excitement may distract you from the point. So I'm going to sit here for just a few seconds. And I want you to listen to this point. Thou prepares, you God, prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Now, to understand this text, the God in this text, you got to go to Jesus. That's the same God that has shown up in his son in Mark 10. And here's what Jesus says, Mark 10, verse uh, uh, 44 and 45. Let me give you the context first. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And the question is, who's the greatest? And Jesus says to his disciples, you know, the Gentiles, folk who don't really know me, they understand their greatness as power that they lord over others. And then here comes verse 44. He says, but not so with you. Everybody say, not so with you. And Jesus says, if you're going to be my followers, instead, you're going to do something different. Come on now. Watch this. He says, instead, anyone of you who want to be great, shout great. Okay, circle that word if you got it or write it down. Because right there, greatness is at the heart of a huge pressure point living in Silicon Valley. Because in our own way, we are all pursuing greatness. And the way we pursue it inevitably, watch this, come on now. Inevitably, we pursue greatness because we make the number one paradigm for our lives personal achievement. Put my warriors up there. You know I had to talk about the warriors. They're playing right now. So I got to hurry up this message because I got to get home. <laughs> this is them last year. Come on now. The world champions that they are. Holding up the trophy. Come on. And you see the trophy. And, 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 and in its own way, it reminds us that for many of us, we haven't thought about it. But the thing that we are pursuing in our own lives, if you had to find a paradigm to model it, to capture it, we're all pursuing our trophy. And the problem with pursuing a trophy, trying to be the best personal achievement is that when personal achievement is the number one thing you live for, you have to worry about the pressure of performance. Now, I'm not saying that you, should, you shouldn't have personal achievement. I'm saying it shouldn't be the number one thing that you live for. Jesus says, you want to be great? He says, let me show you how to be great. Go to John 13. The text is powerful. Just before the night, before his crucifixion, he gets up from the communion table. The text says he takes off his outer coat. It says he takes a towel, wraps it around. Then it says he takes a, he takes a basin that's laying there. He takes a pail and he pours some water in it. He puts the pail down. Jesus, you see him now. God in human comprehensible terms gets down and he says to the disciples with their dirty feet having walked through the dust he says come here he said you want to be great he said let me give you a different paradigm it's not personal achievement 
He said, anybody who wants to be great, and he's talking to him, he said, anybody who wants to be washing their feet, you see, the, the, the God of the universe washing their feet, you ain't listening to me, and the King of kings and Lord of lords washing their feet, come on. He says, now anyone who wants to be great, let me give you a different paradigm. He said, if you want to be great, he who wants to be great has to become a servant. He says, he said, he says, he says, a matter of fact, if you want to be first, if you want to be champions, come on now, you have to be a slave. In other words, be first at servant. Let me wash your feet. This is Jesus. Talk. Come on. Come on. Does that not remind you of the God in Psalms 23? For he prepares, come on now, a table before us. For Jesus to come, he finishes up by saying, he said, do you want to be served? He said, for the son of man did not come to be served. But the son of man, come on, his number one paradigm for defining greatness, the son of man came to serve by giving his life as a ransom, pouring his life out for all of us that we might be saved. God says, you've been living for the trophy. Trade the trophy for the tower. Come on now. Let this be your chief paradigm. Can't you see it? In Psalms 23, you see it? The God of the universe, the one who stepped out on nothing and made everything. Did you hear the psalmist? He prepares a table for me. The notion is, you've ever, you've ever set, you've ever prepared a table? Come on, come on. If you're here, you gotta go in some storage room and pull out a table. You gotta set that table up. The text, the, the, the psalmist is saying, is that the God of the universe is setting the table up for you. Some says he went and got a tablecloth. He put the tablecloth on. Do you see? You see the God of the universe? I mean, how can you be any greater than God? Can you be more powerful than God? Can you be more important than God? And he says, well, no, for you, for you, for you, for you. Come on, whatever your status is for you, he's, he's putting tablecloth. And then, then he says, the NLT says, he prepares a feast. Come on, that, 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 that gets to the implication. You know what it means? Right, it means then, then, then God does the cooking, y'all. That's the cooking, and he's in the pots doing the cooking. And he said, by the way, those of you who work in the service industry, you're, you're, you're supporting all of this. Come on. You're flipping burgers. You're, you're, you're changing the beds in the hospital rooms. Come on. You're the maids in the hotel. You're the assistants of secretaries and administrative assistants. You're the janitors. Come on. You're the mechanics, the plumbers, the architects. Let me just tell you, you work in the service industry. Let me just tell you, you're so close to Jesus. And here you are talking about you ain't nothing. You're trying to be like Mr. So-and-so who got all that money. But Jesus says that's the wrong paradigm. Just serve, baby. Just serve. Just serve. Wow. He goes and gets the tables. He puts the dishes on the table. God does that. God does that. God does that. For you. And God will say, you can't be greater than me. And this is what, this is what, this is what Jada realized, that God had served her. And so she said, and this is exactly how it's supposed to work, when she realized that God had served her. And he serves us in different ways. When God serves her, she was inspired, not mandated, but inspired to say, I want to serve God. I mean, who wouldn't serve a God like Jesus? Who wouldn't follow a God like that? Who, who can't trust a God who would dare get down and wash the feet? Come on now. Oh, my God. And, 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 and so if you say, I want to serve God, God said, good. The way you serve me is by serving others. 
chief paradigm of your life should be a towel, not a trophy. Dr. King put it this way. He said, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. He said, you don't need a college degree to serve. He said, you don't need to make your subject and verb agree to serve. He says, all you need is a heart full of love and a soul generated by grace. That's all you need to serve. The late Barbara Bush put it this way. They laid her to rest yesterday. But here's what she says. She says, never lose sight that the greatest yardstick to measure your success will be how you treat people. In other words, how you serve them. Beginning with your family. Are you serving your spouse? Are you serving your kids? Are you teaching your kids that the number one paradigm is not achievement? Achievement is important, but it's really serving. Come on now. It's developing their kids. Come on. Are you serving when you go to work? You're a CEO. You're a janitor. Come on. You're a lawyer. Come on. You, you, you're a lab tech. But do you see your job as service? Barbara Bush says it's how you treat people. Serve your family. Serve your friends. Serve your coworkers. Serve the folks that you lead. Serve the folks that you meet. Strangers along the way. If that's how you live your life, I got a word for you. When you die, you won't have to be like, you won't have to be Barbara Bush to attract a thousand people. Because if you live a life that reflects God's commitment to serving, when you die, the heavenly host will stand up and say, There lived a great follower of Jesus who served. Give God a hand, praise.